This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. Well, it's the morning after the night before for around 250 Tory MPs who attended a team bonding group dinner last night. And it was the same day that dinner as uh, the Met Police obviously announcing 20 party gate fines, the first batch, there could be more to come. So before we perhaps get to the details of that, James, at Prime Minister's Questions... Partygate is back. How did Boris Johnson respond? So at the beginning of this scandal, Boris Johnson did try contrition in the House of Commons once or twice. And it, and it didn't go very well for him. It didn't sit with his normal style. So today, he was, rem- I mean, he, he was kind of remarkably pugnacious considering the circumstances. And when Keir Starmer made the point that the fact that Metropolitan Police have issued 20 fines does not seem to accord with what Boris Johnson told the House of Commons about how all the rules were followed. Boris Johnson kind of just, just kind of scoffed and said, oh, I thought you were saying I shouldn't resign a few weeks ago. And now you're saying I am, make your mind up kind of thing. And it, it was a remarkably aggressive performance. And I thought what was striking to me was that previously, and you were actually in the chamber, I was sitting at my desk watching it on TV as I was waiting for proof. So you might have a slightly different impression from me on this. But... I thought previously on Boris Johnson had tried that kind of very aggressive tactic in response to questions on this. You could see the discomfort on the Tory benches. Today, that was, I thought, much less visible. Yes, Isabel, it definitely was a lively session. You could see Tory MPs getting pretty boisterous in support of Boris Johnson. Before we get to their team bonding, when it comes to Number 10's approach on Partygate, what do you think they're trying to do? Do you think we will see the Prime Minister apologise if he gets a fine? Or is Boris Johnson effectively trying to say this is, you know, case closed and move on regardless and perhaps not get into the details of whether or not he misled Parliament? I mean, I think because there's so much still to come, I suspect that the attitude is is largely, let's just wait and see, let's just hold the line for the time being, hope that people at the moment don't care enough and particularly given Conservative MPs just aren't in the mood to to start complaining loudly about the Prime Minister at the moment they can get away with that because you know Keir Starmer can can sort of thunder across the dispatch box but uh, but but it doesn't make very much difference when you've got as James said a much more sort of uh, at least a calmer Conservative Party uh, behind the Prime Minister at the moment. And James, let's talk about the mood in the Tory party. Um, you mentioned the dinner. I've reported that on Coffee House today. This was in the place of two parliamentary away days that had been postponed. Apparently that will still happen at some point. Um, so it was at the Crown Plaza. Not every MP attended. I think it was a predominantly male crowd from those I speak to. I think various female MPs decided they had better things to be doing uh, last night. You had Boris Johnson cracking quite a few jokes on stage. Um, Giles Brandeff was the after-dinner speaker. Um, he was talking about losing his seat. I don't think it gave that much encouragement to marginal MPs. But on the way in, you had lots of Tory MPs walking past a silent protest from those who have lost loved ones through the pandemic. So do you think they got the tone right? Should they have been having this dinner? And should Boris Johnson have been playing it for laughs? I think, they, as you've said, they've rescheduled this dinner several times. I think 
on the scheduling list. I don't think having the dinner on the same day that the first set of fines were issued would And have... around the time of Prince Philip Memorial. Yeah, I, 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 I think if they'd known all of those dates, I think they might not have gone for that. I do think that, that the jokes that Boris Johnson was telling is a kind of sign of a kind of current confidence in number 10 about his position. Now, you can say, as I think some kind of old Tory MPs who've seen it all before say, but the, you know, the, the political market overpriced how much danger he was in earlier this year and is now underpricing how much danger he is in because the reality is there is still the Grey report to come and also there is still the fact that inflation at this rate and the squeeze on living standards, you know, take your pick from the OBR, the biggest fall in living standards since the 1950s, or Andrew Bailey, an energy shock equivalent to the 1970s, Government Bank of England. It's hard for politics to be particularly easy for the government in those circumstances. Politics is going to become very, very scratchy again. And I think that one of the challenges for the government is it's quite hard to see what immediate levers that they can pull to solve some of these structural problems. And I think, as you saw at the spring statement, there isn't agreement on what other levers to pull. So, you know, you, you, they're not just prepared to borrow a lot more money and treat this like a kind of furlough-style, pandemic-style moment. They don't want to do that, partly because of the state of the public finances, partly because of the cost of borrowing, and partly because, it, simple fact, it's not a pandemic. But I think that uh, politics is going to become scratchier and more difficult as the cost of living increases begin to really bite in people's pockets. Um, now, for listeners, if you want to know more details from that dinner, do check out my post on Coffee House. And including the wonderful detail of Michael Gove trying to lead a one-man standing ovation for Boris Johnson. And, and Pretty's birthday fears, it's all there. But for now, Isabel, one of the jokes the Prime Minister made, or one of his, his opening gags, so to speak, was actually aimed at Keir Starmer. And he said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, or as Keir Starmer would put it, people who are assigned female or male at birth. Now, this is particularly topical today because there is a Tory MP who has come out, Jamie Wallace, as trans. Can you talk us through that? Yes, so Jamie Wallace is the Tory MP for Bridgend and uh, released a statement this morning um, saying that he, and he still wants to be addressed as he, him for the time being, is trans and uh, that he'd been through a huge amount of turmoil recently, but actually thanking a lot of his colleagues, particularly interestingly given uh, other stories recently, the Whips office, for uh, the amount of support that he's received as he's been adjusting to his uh, gender dysphoria. Boris Johnson paid tribute to Jamie Wallace at Prime Minister's Questions today, saying, I stand with you and will give you the support that you need to live freely as yourself. I think it sort of chimed a little bit badly with the uh, with that joke, which I was sort of reflecting on this because last week at Prime Minister's Questions, Boris Johnson was asked about trans rights and about people transitioning and he gave a, a quite a full answer emphasizing the need for extreme tact and sensitivity uh, and I thought that was rather a, a good answer he, he then went on to say that he felt that um, when it came to distinguishing between a man and a woman the most important thing was biology and you know that upset a lot of people but the way in which he framed it was really good I suspect that he was more mocking Labour well he felt he was more mocking Labour than he was mocking anyone who has gender dysphoria or is non-binary and so on and because Labour have got themselves to be fair into an entirely ludicrous position where whenever they get asked this question 
they rant about what an unfair question it is, which just provokes journalists to ask it more and more. I think the the only person who's really answered it well is Wes Streeting, who um, is their shadow health secretary. Uh, he's given a lot of thoughts to this issue. He what he used to work for Stonewall, but he has been very clear today on the subject of who has what sort of genitalia, but also again on the need for this issue to be treated in, in a sensitive way because the debate has become very toxic. But I don't think, as as I wrote on Coffee House yesterday, I don't think the Labour front bench vacating this space is going to help that. They need to be showing leadership on this to stop it from being dragged further and further to the extremes. Now, finally, um, the other news today is there is a review, um, the Ockington Review into Maternity Failings and the NHS Trust. Isabel, what are the key findings? So this is the final report of Donna Ockenden into the Shrewsbury and Telford uh, NHS Trust, and it looked at around 1,400 complaints about care in those maternity services and has concluded that around 200 babies may have died as a result of failings at that trust. And, I mean, it's it's a very distressing report. One of its conclusions is that there was a a sort of obsessive emphasis on, on natural birth, normal birth, which was something that the Royal College of Midwives had been pursuing as a campaign for many years until recently Um, and this meant that women were denied a cesarean even when they really felt that they should be having one and again there were some very distressing details about uh, what then happened to them and their babies when they were forced to have a vaginal birth but I think it goes beyond just this natural birth normal birth problem that there's a lot in there about staffing levels there's a lot in there that's very very worrying about the way in which families who complained were treated Uh, often women were blamed for what happened to them or their babies either during the process or afterwards and this is something We've seen again and again in NHS scandals, in NHS maternity scandals such as Morecambe Bay, but also more widely mid-staffs being another example where basically the NHS will close ranks and treat people who complain as though they have merely been driven mad by grief and they don't have a foundation on which to make a complaint. Now, 1,400 people being affected by this was only really brought to light by the work of of two bereaved families who started to to look into things themselves because they found themselves up against a brick wall and so this the learning from this has to go wider than just the trust it has to go wider than just maternity services although I think there is a really important set of questions to be asked and Ockenden has made 15 recommendations to be implemented immediately across English maternity services I think there are a lot of questions that the NHS has to learn more widely from this report so Sajid Javid gave a statement in the Commons earlier about this saying that the government would ensure this wouldn't happen again I'm not sure that that is a promise he can really make because we had that promise after Morecambe Bay, which again was exposed by a bereaved father who was treated as though he'd been driven mad by grief. And James Titcombe, that father, has been very distressed by the Shrewsbury and Telford revelations because the thing he campaigned to stop happening again that, that, that led to the death of his son has happened again. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening.